This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. This week, with the energy crisis picking up pace, who are set to be the winners and losers in this cold war for gas? Plus, can the police reform with Cressida Dick still in charge? And finally, what's the future for British butchery? First up, at the moment we're seeing queues for petrol and rising gas prices all in the face of the government's net zero agenda. And internationally, things are looking just as turbulent, with China buying up as much fuel as possible, America becoming more isolationist when it comes to its own energy, and Russia feeling more powerful in its place thanks to its Nord Stream 2 pipeline. These are the issues that Serb Kennedy addresses in his cover piece this week for The Spectator. Seb is the founding editor of Energy Flux, a specialist newsletter all about the clean energy transition. He joins me now, along with senior reporter for Energy and Commodities for Bloomberg and co-author of The World for Sale, Jack Farchi. Seb, in your cover piece for the magazine this week, you write about the world's fight for gas and you say that China has started buying up stock at any cost. Can you explain to a layman why exactly that's now happening? Uh, yes, yeah, so gas is a globally traded commodity. It's traded in liquefied form aboard these enormous vessels called uh, LNG vessels, liquefied natural gas vessels. And uh, when supply is a bit tight, which is what we're seeing at the moment, then you essentially have a bidding war between regions. Um, So you've got China and other Asian economies like Japan, South Korea. They're uh, enormous buyers of liquefied natural gas and they're in a bidding war with the EU and with the UK for uh, what are increasingly scarce supplies of LNG. And their procurement in the, in Asia is run by state-controlled entities. So they essentially have a state mandate to pay whatever it costs to, uh, to get the supplies that they need. And also in Asia, they have much less capacity to store gas and LNG than we do in Europe. So they have to just pay whatever it takes to make sure they don't run out. And that's what we're seeing. So every time that the price goes up in like the UK or in EU wholesale markets, the Asian spot price of LNG rises even more. And that kind of draws all of the vessels eastwards and into those ports that will give them access to uh, the, the, the best profits. So essentially, the vessels follow the money, the gas follows the money. And right now, the money's in Asia. Right. And uh, Jack, can you start by explaining to listeners who are the kind of big winners and the big losers from this battle for gas? Well, the losers is most of us, unfortunately, because uh, uh, certainly in the UK and in much of the world, we use gas to heat our houses and we're all going to be paying much, much higher gas bills both this winter and I suspect for, for a long time after that. And even more so, I mean, looking at the, the way that the, the, the system works in the UK, there's a price cap set by the regulator. So for consumers, for ordinary people, the price we're paying is capped, but for industry, it isn't. And so uh, industrial users, you know, manufacturers, companies that use lots of power to, to make things are in a really uncomfortable position at the moment. And I mean, essentially what's happening in the market, the market is telling us there isn't enough gas to go around. Seb's absolutely right, because China and other Asian consumers are buying lots of it. There isn't enough gas to go around. Somebody has to use less of it. 
And the answer is probably going to be manufacturers. We're going to have to start to see factories shutting down or doing less in order to conserve gas. The winners is everyone who produces gas and, of course, the people who trade it, the commodity traders who, as apologies for the book plug, uh, uh, my co-author and I wrote in our book, The World for Sale, about uh, how commodity traders, you know, have played this very influential and extremely profitable part in the commodity markets over the last 50 years. They always do very well in a crisis situation. They did extremely well last year when prices for oil and other natural resources, including gas, collapsed. They bought it up all up at, uh, at very low prices and held on to it until prices recovered. And now many of them are doing very well from prices soaring. So have you mentioned Russia in your piece. What, what's their involvement been in this? Opportunistic, I'd say. Um, you have to understand the, the dynamics of the gas market to understand what Russia has done to exploit it. So heading out, do you remember last winter it was quite chilly till quite late in the year and that kept gas prices quite high in wholesale markets in Europe and and the UK. And so you had a situation where prices were a bit higher than usual and the, the forward price of gas, so if you were to buy gas in February for delivery in, say, October, November, December, was actually a lot lower or was was kind of more depressed than it is now, much more depressed. And that's because traders expected more gas to be coming down Russia's new pipeline, Nord Stream 2, which will pipe Arctic gas under the Baltic Sea into Germany and then into the rest of Europe. So you had this situation where there was a big demand for gas like right now, as in like the end of winter, and there wasn't really much economic incentive to refill those stocks. So, so gas stocks were being depleted and there, there was no real profit in, in actually kind of buying more gas because you thought if, you, if you, you only buy gas and store it, you think you're going to make a profit later on. So traders thought, well, chances are there'll be loads of gas coming down Nord Stream 2. Let's just let the gas stocks kind of run much drier than usual. So heading into the summer, the European gas stocks were much, much more depleted, like kind of well below their 10-year average. And then you saw this kind of gargantuan buying spree by China, by Japan, by South Korea, by Taiwan. And suddenly Europe was in a situation where we're in a bidding war that we can't win and we don't have enough stocks or we don't really have as much as we should have at this time of year. So there was this almighty scramble to buy whatever scant cargoes there were on the market. And of course, Europe's kind of losing out. And then Gazprom looked at this situation and it's been widely interpreted as them saying we're not going to we're going to supply gas according to our long-term contracts so we're going to kind of supply the minimum we're supposed to but in situations like this normally Gazprom responds to market signals and sends additional gas like top-up gas to to gas traders and it appears that they're not doing that this year even though the market is absolutely screaming out for more gas so you have to ask the question, well, why has Gazprom decided to do that? And it controls gas, its own gas storage facilities in Germany. And if you look at the statistics, the gas stocks that Gazprom controls in Germany are way below. Like they're, they're running kind of, I don't know, maybe 70% lower than they normally are this time of year. And you think, well, why has Gazprom let that happen in a market that's short of gas? And it's been widely interpreted as essentially Gazprom, read the Kremlin, putting pressure on the German regulator to allow Nord Stream 2 to enter operation. Because remember that Nord Stream 2 is not operational yet. It needs sign-off from the German regulator and uh, essentially from the European Commission. 
And there's a big kind of soap opera around that, about is Nord Stream 2 compatible with European regulations? And it seems like essentially the Kremlin is trying to kind of strong arm the market into um, saying, well, you know, you need gas, you're paying insane prices for gas right now. We have a brand new shiny gas pipe running under the Baltic Sea. Just give us the go ahead and you'll have loads of more extra Russian gas come in and everyone can be happy this winter. Right. Jack, Seb also says in his piece that Europeans might wonder what happened to their freedom gas, which was the term that Trump used to describe American exports of LNG to their overseas allies. What has happened to it? Well, the short answer is a lot of it's going to Asia. But uh, I think a more worrying trend that we're seeing, you know, after this kind of drive from the US to increase exports and, uh, you know, free trade in natural resources, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a, been a, a tenet of US and European uh, policy towards Russia on gas to say we want free markets where, you know, people pay market prices and the gas goes to whoever pays the highest price. Now we're beginning to see as people worry about running out of energy. And we should say it's not just gas, you know, gas prices, yes, have gone up sevenfold or more and are at record highs. But so are coal prices. So are electricity prices in a lot of Europe. And so it's a it's a full blown energy crisis. We're beginning to see now people talking about restricting exports of energy. So, for example, Serbia yesterday, I think it was yesterday, you had the Serbian president talking about uh, banning exports of electricity. You had US politicians talking now about a ban on crude oil exports as a tool that they could possibly use. So suddenly that whole kind of rhetoric towards free markets and supplying the world uh, with with energy, which was very easy to say when prices were low and supplies were plentiful, is now potentially being reversed, which is, I I would say, a worrying trend. And so you say at the end of your piece that all of this paints a difficult picture for the UK. I mean, you say at the end that we just need to pray for a mild winter in China. Is there anything else that the British government can do at this point? Uh, they can pray for a, a windy winter in the UK. <laughs> we might get that. <laughs> <laughs> windy and warm, that's what we need. Okay, and there's nothing else that they can do really to... Well, you either make hard decisions now or you make them later. When there is tightness in supply and when mar- when prices reach the price they have now, then you've gone beyond the point where the market is signalling for more supply because the signal for more supply was back in the early summer and it didn't arrive. So that what happens is the prices become what's called unanchored. So the prices, wholesale prices become unanchored and they're in search of the, the pain points where people start turning off. So you, like, who's going to switch off first? It's kind of a game of chicken. And so you're, you're going to have to have uh, demand destruction, you know, factories, uh, like Jack was saying, factories shutting down, large energy intensive processes being dialed down, being run less. Uh, and, and that has to happen. That simply has to happen. Otherwise, the market won't balance. And either that or you do get lots of Russian gas coming down Nord Stream 2. But, you know, that that's all very much up in the air. And and so you kind of look at it from the UK government's position. What what levers are at their disposal right now? They, they, they kind of protect consumers with the, the retail price cap that somebody has to pay. And that comes at the expense of the independent suppliers. And they are selling energy below the, the, the cost that it the, below cost. And when that happens, then they're essentially a loss-making enterprise. And that's why you've seen them dropping like flies. You've seen massive consolidation. We're about to see massive consolidation in the retail space because somebody has to pay. And if it's not the consumer, then you'll see kind of massive retrenchment in the utility space. And essentially, all of these kind of scores of independent suppliers that came in 
to, to kind of drive innovation and drive competition and they were operating on very thin business models and very thin margins they simply can't survive in this market so they all go out of business and then you have a kind of retrenchment back to the, the big six or big seven utilities who have the kind of the, the financial depth to be able to absorb loss-making customers and and they've got hedging strategies that can just about manage to tide them over until a point when the market is a bit more balanced. Jack, just finally, we're obviously a few weeks ahead of COP26. Do you think this battle for gas might focus minds when it comes to renewable energy? Yeah, I think it's going to have a big impact on the discussion. And I worry that it's probably a negative impact when it comes to um, momentum on climate change. You know, this is, I would say, the first energy crisis of the energy transition. It's the first crisis we've seen in this period when the world is trying to shift away from fossil fuels. And it's a real wake up call for politicians who've assumed they can rely on cheap fossil fuels as we try and shift systems away from fossil fuels. You know, we build more wind and solar, we try and uh, replace petrol cars with electric vehicles, etc. What this is telling us is actually trying to decarbonise your energy system and have energy security so that the lights don't go out in the winter and have low prices. Those are three things that you probably can't have at the same time and governments are going to have to choose. And, you know, we're seeing, for example, with China at the moment, you know, they choose energy security first and foremost. Every government will choose energy security first and foremost. And, you know, part of what's happened with China, they've been shutting dirty coal mines and and trying to trying to reduce carbon emissions of the coal sector. And one of the consequences is what we're seeing now is a real shortage of, of coal. So I, I worry that this is actually going to remove some momentum from, you know, taking action on climate change. It certainly strengthens the hand of people like the Russians, the Saudi Arabians, because the world really, really needs their gas and their oil now. We can't uh, afford to, you know, as Putin was talking yesterday and, uh, and enjoying himself very much, it seemed, uh, about the gas situation. We need them. Um, and so that puts them in a stronger position. Thank you, Seb and Jack. Next up, Leroy Logan, a former superintendent in the Met, writes in this week's Spectator that if the Met and the police are to reform its subculture of racism and misogyny, it can't be done with Cressida Dick still at the helm. He joins me now, along with Sharon Hay, former officer and policing advocate. Leroy, you start your piece this week with quite an emphatic statement. You say that Cressida Dick must now go. How did you come to this conclusion? Well, having known Cressida Dick for over 20 years, and I knew her when she came back into the Met around the 2000 mark, and she was heavily involved in race and equality and the equity piece. And she really showed an understanding of where the organisation needs to move. She understood that even though institutional racism was an indictment, she saw it as a a way to improve the organisation, to prove people wrong, that we are fit for purpose for the 21st century. And it was the whole narrative she repeatedly came across as positive. And then here we are 20 years later, and I, I think, well, when she's saying it, they're not, and it, it's not for her to say, it's because it was a, a statutory inquiry that said it's institutional racist. And a recently um, Home Affairs Select Committee was saying very clearly that there is uh, systemic failures. And it's, it's just the, 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 the dismissal. No, no, that's not the case. 
And it seems like she's trying to play to another audience, you know, the culture of the organisation. Now, I understand, you know, as head of the, the Met, she needs to say certain things, but to dismiss other possibilities. And it's a similar attitude she's now got with institutional sexism and institutional misogyny. She just is like, she cannot get put the words across. So she's got a block, and, and I think she's... She's not only just given up, I just think she's, she just can't see it. And you would think, um, especially when it comes to sexism, a woman would be even more clear on it. And uh, that, that's where I, I, I've seen, I've just don't seen the contrast in Cressida. Uh, she, she told me to call her Cres, so I've always called her Cres. And so Cres, for me, is unrecognisable from 20 years ago. And in between, obviously... We've had the issues around the Stockwell shooting of John Charles Menendez. And we've had the issues around the Stephen Lawrence investigation being shelved. And she didn't have to say it. She didn't need to make it known easily. But she decided it was a big thing, especially during Black Lives Matter. One of the worst times, if you could really... The timing couldn't be worse if you tried. So that, that, that for me, is she's not got a finger on the pulse. She's not understanding these critical issues and how to play it and it's especially around culture change she doesn't seem to be willing to move the organization on because she can't see anything wrong with it so it needs someone else Sharon this isn't the first time there have been calls for Cresta Dick's resignation do you think she should go uh that's a tough one for me I didn't serve in the Met. I served in um, Northamptonshire Constabulary, which is a provincial force, uh, one of the smallest in the country, so some miles and distance away from um, the hubbub of the Met. So I haven't sort of served under her tenure. Looking on it uh, from an outsider's perspective, for the moment I would say no, because who you're going to replace her with, what would it achieve, what would sacking her right now, um, putting her out of office right now serve, what, what purpose would that serve, aside from baying the mob. The mob will get what it wants, she's out of a job, um, and then we then have to start again, as it were, or build a new relationship with a new commissioner and see what they bring to the table in terms of uh, the various issues that present themselves. I don't see it as a productive thing right now. I welcome the review, the independent review that's been announced, the, you know, the appalling issues that we're, you know, we're talking about have come to the fore in the most terrible manner um, that you can think possible. So, you know, it's a perfect opportunity for a commissioner to, to, to look at what the Met does, because that will reverberate right around the service. Um, but in terms of, you know, a short answer, should she go? I think the answer is no. Can, can I just come in here? If you're referring to me as being part of the mob, well, I'm happy to be part of that mob. And Actually, I wasn't. No, no like, well, I mean, I'm just saying... You, you didn't clarify. Um, you know, that's so terminology I, I, I think I've used, we, I, I think, but no, yeah. no I, I, I wasn't insinuating that you were... But, you know, we can call it everything time something goes wrong and it's awful. Don't get me wrong. It is pretty awful. But it, 
you know, to consistently call for people to resign. You know, where's the continuity? Where's the opportunity? Continuity is, is useful, but continuity of doing the same thing. I, I'm just going by the here and now as well, because she knows that Cousins was charged and more than likely going to be convicted because he was caught bank to rights. And as a result of that, she's had six months to really figure out what to do. And all she could do is to sign off a strategy which has got the onus on women to challenge officers. Now, that is so impractical. I mean, I, I've been running leadership programmes for young people to know their rights and responsibilities. And I know how careful you have to be to say, listen, prepping up young people uh, or, or young women in particular to say to officers, why are you stopping me? What are you looking for? What's your name? Station, all that sort of stuff. And then just to come out with this back of a fag packet type strategy to say, well, you can challenge the officer and get in touch with the control room and if you're not happy, where, where are the other, other officers? And then you flag down a bus and all this sort of thing. It doesn't make any practical sense. Now, if that's an indication of continuity, I'll have nothing to do with it. Well, none of that. Well, none of those things are new. You've always, as a member of the public, male or female, you've always had that opportunity and right, actually, to confront an officer and say, I'm not comfortable here, I, I want a, a witness or I want backup or I'm, I want to call the station, I want to verify you are who you say you are. We're talking about other issues here, about issues of confidence and whether people feel confident to push back against uh, an officer stopping them at, at, at any juncture, whether it be at their front door or in the street um, or in public and say, I want to check your identity. Any officer who is there doing the right thing, and the vast majority of them are, as you well know, would only be too happy to turn, here's my warrant card, here's my, um, here's my station, yes they will. I've been there, I've done it, I've had it said to me, and, and I, I, can't, I can't say anything about that, but I, I, all I'm, you know, I was asked on here to give my personal experience and my views, and that's, and that's what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm, I'm not casting a disparity on anything that you've said there. What I would say is, there is always that right for members of the public to challenge an officer and to, to, to seek confirmation as to their identity and, and to make sure that they're um, operating you know, within their powers and within the law. That's always been the case. This is nothing new. And I think she felt she probably had to say something. I can't speak for her, but as a member of the public now, I would say that she's probably felt she's had to say something to give her, you know, and, and, and formulate a response. I wouldn't call it the back of a fag packet response at all. Sorry, Leroy, I can't, I can't agree with you there. Sharon, can I ask you a bit about the culture in the police, in, in the Met rather, because um, Leroy outlines it a bit in his piece. He says that the culture is misogynistic and at its worst in specialist groups like the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Branch, which is the branch that Wayne Cousins was in. Is that was that your experience of it as well that it tended to be quite a kind of misogynistic environment? I mean, if you're talking about race and misogyny, two separate issues. Which one was worse for me? And I would have to say misogyny. But that's inside the job and outside the job. Before I came on today, I took a piece of paper and I wrote down misogyny and race 
inside the job and outside the job because I wanted to try and sort of recall. I skimmed over my um, service inside the job and the roles that I've uh, conducted since to try and sort of, you know, recall some incidents where those uh, issues have, have raised their heads. In terms of race within the job, I have to say the members of the public were the worst for that. It's easy target. You've got blackface at a job. What are they, you know, they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to be taken into custody. They don't want to comply with whatever it is you're saying. The first thing they're going to go for is your race. And I was verbally abused on many occasions. I realised that came with the territory, but I also realised that there was something that I could do about it. And I have to say that I got 100% support from my fellow officers who were appalled at what had happened to me and, uh, you know, supported me throughout um, vigorously, you know, via the law, via the prosecutions and from mutual support um, as being part of their teams. In terms of the Diplomatic Protection Group, the DPG, subsequent to my police service, I undertook close protection training. So I've um, gone on to do other things, you know, perform um, part of a protection team for uh, wealthy individuals, corporate people. And the first course that I did was with diplomatic protection officers. And I was the only female there. I was the only black person there. Um, No, that's not true. One of the gentlemen there was uh, a black officer, but the others were not. So there was me and him, and uh, I have to say they were... Again, they were professional to me. We bounced off each other in terms of ideas. You know, we were given various assignments to work through. We had to work together as a team. We had to pool our experiences to make the training work and to pass the course, because they don't just give you these tickets. You have to show that you can you know, demonstrate the skills uh, that are required of a protection officer. And, uh, you know, and it's just coincidental that, you know, the piece mentions the DPG. You know, those officers, to a man, were professional with me and uh, looked after me like one of their own. And I can't say it, I, I can't speak highly enough of them. That's not to say that's not everyone else's experience. I'm just speaking for mine. I value your opinion. But it's quite clear the evidence speaks for itself in terms of literally during the weekend, another DPG officer gets convicted of rape. And the fact that a few years ago they tried to reform the DPG, or is actually the the parliamentary and diplomatic protection branch, and that PADP, as they call it now, pushed back on it because... They have got some real diehards who've been there too long. They should have had tenure and should be moved out to keep it refreshed and renewed. And they prevented a proper review. So that says a lot where they're not willing to really change. Now, because, and no disrespect, but you've never served in London. you never served in a specialist unit. So really, you wouldn't know how... They operate as a subculture, and it can be very extreme. And that's why it's not surprising that certain laddish activity has led on to quite extreme views, and then it's led on to quite extreme behaviour. And it's not exclusive to them. 
I'm not in any way suggesting it is. Because even Chief Superintendent Palm Sandhu, who's retired now, only the last couple of years, said that she suffered misogyny. Shab Chowdhury, superintendent, said she suffered it as well. And, and in the case of Palm, she actually said quite recently that she'd be very careful to complain because it might have implications on operational risk. Because she whistle blew, there's a possibility that if she's in trouble, no one's going to come and give her the backup. So you've got two female officers of Asian background who have basically said they felt compromised to complain. Uh, and, and it wasn't just on sexism, it was on racism as well. So we have to call it out for what it is. Because that's the only way we're going to get reform. That's the only way we're going to get culture change. It shouldn't be just on the PAD-P. It should be on other specialist units and the wider organisation. And it needs to be done with someone who accepts there's a problem and is willing to make the changes necessary. Leroy and Sharon, thank you very much. And finally, Olivia Potts is training to be a butcher. And in this week's Spectator, she writes about her experiences as well as the state of the industry. Nigel Jarvis is a fourth-generation butcher who's just retired after an unexpected boom in custom during lockdown. They both join me now to discuss how the sausage is made. Livy, in the magazine this week, you write about your recent journey into butchery. What was it that made you decide to become a butcher? Oh, well, I think, I think it might be pushing us a little bit to say become a butcher. I'm, I'm a caterer who can do some butchery. Um, it was basically an entire accident. I decided that I wanted to do a course that my local college had previously offered, which was, I think, four or six weeks of two-hour evening classes where someone holds your hand and shows you how to make sausages and I think you probably slice up a couple of pork chops. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting and something that might help me in, in chefing and become more confident with meat. So I tried to sign up to it three, maybe four times, and each time the course got cancelled. And eventually I went in and spoke to the butcher and there simply wasn't the demand for it. But he, in the space of 20 minutes, talked me into doing a 12-month level two NVQ in butchery that, that required slightly more commitment, both time-wise and, uh, and physically. But it was brilliant. I, yeah, 12 months of, of being taught by a very experienced butcher how to cut up anything I could think of. Nigel, you are also a butcher, but I think I'm right in saying that your experience of butchery goes back quite a bit further than Olivia's. How long back does the craft book go back in your family? Well, I, I think I'm about the fourth generation. Um, so we go back to about 1870. And uh, we've been trading in the same premises in Burwash since then. And I, am I right in thinking your Burwash beauty sausages are, are well known in the area? Yes, um, <laughs> yes, we, we, um, we nicknamed them the Burwash Beauty oh, some 40 years ago, and it's it sort of stuck ever since. And what's it been like being a butcher in the past year or so? Has it, have there been various challenges? Um, it became very busy at the start of uh, the pandemic. So, yes, it was, it was challenging, but um, the, the trade was certainly uh, better following, uh, following the lockdown. Liv, you also talk in your piece about the national shortage of butchers, which has been making front page news. I mean, what, what do you think is the kind of solution to that? Well, I think what we're seeing at the moment is a shortage of slaughtermen, slaughterhouse workers and initial processing butchers. 
because we've we've been made aware of that by the fact that we we simply can't get pigs through into the abattoirs. But there is holistically uh, a, a, a nationwide shortage of butchers. What I say in the piece and, and what I believe is that we can't be short termist about this. We need to be looking at how we support butchery as a trade and a craft and how we ensure that the um, the supply chain from the field right through to the butcher's shop is given the, the funding and the respect it deserves. At the moment, we have lost a lot of processing butchers and slaughtermen to a combination of the uncertainties of Brexit and the pandemic. But it does go back further than that in that butchers on high streets, which tend to be the butchers as opposed to supermarket butchers, who are you know, trained in whole carcass butchery, value-added products, giving you what you want when you turn up and, and ask for a particular cut or weight. They have been pushed out by the supermarket giants. There are very small profit margins, which makes it not only hard to sustain a business, but also very hard to fund the training of the next generation of butchers, which is obviously an investment that that needs time, money, but also the skill of butchers who exist the moment before they retire. Nigel, as someone who has worked in a small independent butchers, how, how have you found it competing with the big supermarkets over the sort of past few decades? Well, I, <clears throat> the thing is that um, supermarkets are, are they, they do retail uh, lower prices on certain products, poultry being one. But where supermarkets have an, in, an in-house red meat counter, uh, I found their prices to be actually higher. Than the, than the high street butchers that I have experienced. So they're quite good at, at sort of retailing cheap packs of meat and sometimes from imported sources. But when it comes to preparing, cutting and, uh, and presenting meat from carcasses, they are, I think, more expensive. That's interesting. Livy, you talk in your piece about your retraining and about how more women are now becoming butchers and, and that's obviously sort of probably quite a new thing. I mean, what do you think is encouraging more women to become butchers? I would hope that it is simply that we are moving forward into a more modern world where not only are, are women able to hold their own in historically male-dominated workplaces, but that the men in those workplaces are more willing to accept them. There's also a certain amount of, you know, you can only be what you can see. And I'm hoping that there's a snowball effect. You know, a few years ago, it was a, a true novelty, I think, to be a woman in a butcher's shop as a, as a trained butcher. But we're now seeing more and more, not only women butchers, but women-led butchery businesses. We're seeing women on the, the English, the British butchery team. We're seeing women writing about butchery and about the, the realities of it. And I think that, that the more, you know, the more we see of that, the more younger women will realise that it's a viable career option and follow them into it. Just to go on from you, uh, Olivia, there, of course, it's becoming less physical, isn't it? Going back in the day when carcasses arrived from the lorry in quarter form, weighing sort of 70, 80, 90 kilos, you know, it was very much a, a man's world. But today you can buy primal cuts still on the bone, but in, in much smaller quantities. Um, so that makes it um, much more agreeable for ladies. <laughs> Nigel, I think I'm right in saying that you're retiring from the family butchers that you've worked in since 1985. Are other members of your family taking on the profession or have they decided to do different things? Uh, no, my brother runs my partner. Uh, my brother is my partner and runs the Burwash shop. But this one here in Etchingham, 
because we're so close in distance between each other, we decided to, to close this one. As I was 65 and I've been here 36 years or something, I, I thought I would I would take the retirement option um, while still lending my support to, to Graham at Burwash. And what's what's your advice to anyone interested in going into butchery? Where, where should they start? Is it with a course like the one that Livy did or are there other ways in? There are courses. There are, the locally, there's one at Plumpton, Plumpton College. But there's quite a lot of in-house training going on with, with butchers that do take on apprentices. I think that's the way to go. My college, Smithfield College, that I attended back in 1975 for three years, had, uh, had three classes uh, with 100 students. Um, well, clearly, you know, today that's, it's not possible to fill classes with those number of students in one situation. But uh, yeah, in-house training is the way to go uh, with, with apprenticeships. And just finally, I wanted to ask you both, what's the sort of best cut of meat to ask for when you go into a butcher's? What's the kind of, what's, what do you always ask for, Livy? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it, it depends a bit which recipe I'm developing for the spectator that week, to be honest with you. Um, I like oxtail, to be honest with you, which is probably not a terribly exciting cut to be asking for as, as someone interested in butchery. But it's one that's harder to, to get outside of butchers and one that really pays dividends in cooking down. So, you know, if I'm made of gold or celebrating, then it'd probably be a, a rib of beef. But otherwise, I'm asking for oxtail. And Nigel, what, what would be your advice? Um, I've, got, uh, I've got two choices. Um, if it's um, a, winter, a winter stew, then it would be shin of beef because that breaks down, the collagen breaks down within the shin and gives you a, a lovely gravy. But if I'm if I'm going for Saturday night steak, then it would be ribeye for me. Everything has to be hung. It can't come out of a plastic bag. It, it needs hanging, hanging for three weeks, properly in a fridge. And I think then you get the very best of whichever cut you choose. Olivia and Nigel, thank you for joining. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read all of the pieces discussed. If you become a subscriber, you can get 10 weeks of the magazine delivered to your door, plus a bottle of Pims worth £25 for just £10. To get the deal, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Pims. I'm Laura Prendergast, and thank you for listening. Do join us again next week.